cease to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? Many things to glean from this, but central to this passage of Scripture, we will find God teaching Jonah a great lesson, and I hope we can see it too. Well, when we think about the lost, we think about sinners coming to Christ. What is our desire, should be our desire as God's people when it comes to lost sinners? Is it not our desire to see those sinners bound in sin to be set free in Christ? Isn't it our desire to see those who are dead in their sins to be made alive unto God by His marvelous grace? Shouldn't we long for those who are running towards judgment to be delivered from the wrath to come? This indeed is our desire. And if we see such a thing, what response should we have whenever a sinner repents? The response of God's people should be that of joy and praise and thankfulness to God. Jesus said, there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. You think about this scenario that Jonah has experienced, how he is seeing a whole city repent and turn to God. What if I was given the opportunity to stand before a camera and have a live broadcast into every home in Van Buren, or maybe even more broadly, into all of the United States of America, and I was able to preach the gospel to them. And through that broadcast, every person in those homes becomes broken over their sinfulness and repentant towards God. Everyone confesses Christ as Lord and Savior. And we begin to see a great regeneration and revival among, the, among a nation or even a city. And then I sit down and pout and I'm mad about that. What would you think about that? A little opposite of how I should react, right? Now, I can tell you, if that did happen, I would be ecstatic. I would be blown away. I would bow in awe at the wondrous grace of God and what he is doing. But not so with Jonah. Not so with Jonah. 
See, in our last message, we saw the power of God's saving grace in Nineveh. Jonah preached what God told him to preach, and the entire city, from the king to the servant, repents in sackcloth and ashes, turning to God, changing their, turning from their evil ways. What did we expect Jonah to respond with joy and praise to God? We would think that that should be the response. We would think that after chapter 3, with such an example, such a demonstration of God's power, that maybe that would be a great time to conclude the narrative of Jonah. What a great story and account of Nineveh coming to know the one true God. The book would have a very happy ending, wouldn't it? If it ended at chapter 3. But what we find instead at the end of Jonah's story is great disdain, great discouragement, great anger, great disappointment in him. Jonah had no pity, no compassion whatsoever for these Ninevites. He had pity on other things like himself, but not for the Ninevites. And that is why I say he's not a prophet with no pity at all. He has a selfish pity. A selfish pity. And because of Jonah's selfish form of pity in this passage, God's going to teach him some things that are in turn great lessons for us as well. So what do we see with Jonah in this text? Notice with me, number one, we see Jonah's sinful resentment. We see his sinful resentment at what God is doing here in Nineveh. There's two things I want you to recognize about this encounter with Jonah. And, and, and it's important for us to grasp them. The first thing I'll have you note, that Jonah, he was correct in his theology. He was correct in his theology. What he knew of God and who God is. You see, before we really dive into the negative aspects going forward of Jonah's response, which certainly permeate the passage, there's a positive here that actually only enhances his negative. There's a positive here that enhances his negative response. We read briefly in verse 1 that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry because of Nineveh's repentance. But then Jonah proceeds and declares his theology, what he knows to be true about God. In verse 2, he prays. Seems kind of like an odd thing to do when he's angry, but he prays. And notice what he says. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste. To flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, in case you're wondering why Jonah ran at the beginning of the book, what's the reason for that? He just gave you a little insight into why he ran. He ran because he knew who God was. That sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? He ran because of who God is. Notice the theology of Jonah. Who is God in his statement? Firstly, he knows that God is a gracious God. What's it mean that God is gracious? We know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It is the favor and blessing of God that is something that you can't earn and it's something that you cannot deserve, that you do not deserve. You see, to be gracious means that God is kind and merciful, exhibiting acts towards people that they are unworthy of. And so you understand that the principle of being saved by grace, that is foundational to us as Christians. 
If God was not a gracious God, there's not a one of us in here that would be saved. As Paul rightly said in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, he said, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's salvation. That's regeneration. That's spiritual resurrection. And notice what he tacks on there just to make it clear. For by grace you are saved. Because you can't do that on your own. Notice Jonah also knows that God's merciful. God's mercy is closely connected to his grace. It's often understood that mercy is not getting what we deserve, which is God's wrath, right? But here the word refers to sympathy and compassion. God is compassionate in his nature. Notice Jonah also says of God that he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. See, though God is angry with the wicked every day, being slow to anger means that he is patient and long-suffering even with the wicked for a certain time. You understand that God exhibits patience towards this wicked world every day in which the sun rises. His patience and long-suffering fascinate me. They go beyond what I can understand. He knows, Jonah knows, that God is slow to anger. He knew that God was abounding in steadfast love. God doesn't just have a little bit of love, but you understand that love is part of who he is. 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You see, God's steadfast love here, it is deeper than any ordinary love. It is a covenantal love. It's a deep love upon his people, and it's clearly evidenced his love towards Nineveh, Nineveh by their repentance. You see, steadfast love, while extended to Jonah, filled him with thanksgiving. When extended to the Ninevites, it filled him with anger. And fifthly, regarding to what, God, what Jonah says of God, he says that God would be relenting from disaster upon those who repent. What's it mean that he relents from disaster? It's what you see in verse 10. What's see in verse 10? Judgment was coming upon Nineveh, but God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God stayed his hand of judgment. He stayed his hand of judgment for those who repented and returned to him. And so from this one verse here from Jonah, we have a rich theology of God. A rich theology of God. Now, how did Jonah know this truth about God? Well, he's a prophet of Israel, right? He has right theology because he knows the true God. But first and foremost, understand, he knows God from the revelation of God himself. What is God's revelation of himself to us? Specifically so that we may know him. It is the word of God. It is the scriptures that you have in your hand. And what do the scriptures say of God that Jonah would have known? The Bible tells us in Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's almost like Jonah quotes this, doesn't it? He's using the same terms, the same descriptions, the same characteristics. Several more passages abound about the nature of the character of God, and they plainly declare who he is, and Jonah knew this. But he also understood who God was by God's dealings with Israel manifested plainly. And what the scriptures taught. You see, God's character is not only spoken about, but demonstrated on multiple occasions in Israel's history. 
Jonah knew Israel's history. He also knew in his own lifetime of God's mercy towards Israel when they did not deserve it. We opened up the book of Jonah by recalling one of the prophecies that Jonah mentions. If you go to 2 Kings 14, 23-27, I won't read it for you, but just to note it, we learn that though Jeroboam was wicked in his deeds, God still mercifully used him to restore the northern territory of Israel. God showed mercy to them when they didn't deserve it. And all of that came about in verse 25 of that text, according to the word of the Lord God, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai. See, Jonah saw firsthand who God was. He knew firsthand who God was. And there's two things I want us to gather from this, this little point here. The first thing I want you to understand is that it is imperative to have right theology. Because there's a lot of bad theology in the world, especially in a lot of Christian circles, right? You say, well, what is theology? Theology is the doctrine of God and all the truth that coincides with God. So, so understand that, that, that theology must be correct. You say, well, how do we know right theology? By rightly, rightly dividing and interpreting the word of God, the revelation of God himself to us. If you want to know God, dig into your Bible. So many want to know God by these mystical experiences and this and that. All sorts of different things today. You understand that God is revealed. We know him through his word. We know him through his word. If you want to know him, dig into the word of God. There you will find him plain as day, deep and wide, glorious and majestic. We must have right theology. But there's something else we learn here with Jonah. He's got right theology. But having right theology doesn't mean necessarily that you're right with God. Catch that? Having right theology does not necessarily mean that your heart is right with God. As you look at Jonah's prayer here, you see that he went to Nineveh. Not because he was happily obedient to the call of God, that God might be merciful to our enemies, but only because he was supposed to do what the Lord had told him to do. He tried the opposite, didn't he? How'd that work out for him? He's brought to the point where, you know what? There's no other option here but to do what God says, and maybe, just maybe, God will still bring judgment on them. You understand his heart was not right. You know, Jesus said to the religious of his day in Mark 7, 6, he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but what? Say it with me, church. But what? Their heart is far from me. You understand how dangerous this is, even for us as Christians? See, outward acts do not mean that a person's heart is right. Jonah was only doing what he was supposed to do because he had to do it. How many Christians have the same kind of mindset in these kind of matters? How many walk through the doors of a church house, come and participate in worship? They appear outwardly to be there and be engaged in worship, but inwardly their heart is nowhere near where it ought to be. If that's you today, I hope that this will prompt you to examine your heart because your heart is what's most important to God. 
So you understand, correct theology doesn't make a person right with God. You can know all of the right doctrines of the Bible and still die and go to hell. Hell is full of religious people who professed Christianity but did not truly know God. We must examine our hearts. But notice with me, let her be here. Jonah, not only was he correct in his theology... But this ties into, it kind of enhances his sin here. He was corrupt in his thinking. He was corrupt in his thinking. Again, his heart flows out in this passage. In verse 1, he says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He's angry. The Hebrew word for exceedingly is used 13 times in this book. Sometimes translated as great. It's an expression that enhances and intensifies something. And we see that Jonah has an extensive anger, a hot displeasure about Nineveh's repentance. Now, this is hard to fathom for us in many ways. How could the prophet of God be angry about sinners repenting of their wickedness and God relenting of his wrath? Have you ever wondered why in the world is Jonah so mad? Why is he so angry? Well, there are a few things we may be able to glean that contribute to his anger. And I list these for you, a few of them. Number one, I think might contribute to his anger. Jonah could have been seen as a false prophet from their repentance. So why is that? What was Jonah's message to the city? You remember what it was? You go back to chapter 3 and look at verse number 4. His message is short and simple. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You understand there's no hope of mercy in that text, in that message. There's there's no option of maybe God would spare them. It's a declaration. He's making a statement. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And so if this doesn't come to pass in 40 days, it may look like Jonah didn't proclaim the truth in the name of the Lord, or maybe that his God had changed his intention with Nineveh. How did this affect him among his fellow Israelites, of whom the Ninevites were enemies to? His reputation's at stake in this. Calvin rightly said that the reason for Jonah's anger was because he was unwilling to appear as a vain and lying prophet. The second thing that contributes to Jonah's anger is Jonah has disdained that God has spared or is going to spare the enemies of Israel. You understand that these are not just your average folks walking down the street that we're among. You're not not at, at, at enmity or with them or not. These are vicious enemies of Israel. They are barbaric, violent, wicked people. Jonah knew the effect of the Ninevites, which... Uh, are the Assyrians also known as, against the people of Israel. Perhaps Jonah foresaw and feared the movement of the Assyrian armies towards Israel. The stigma, the stigma of being instrumental in the sparing of one of Israel's greatest enemies may have been more than Jonah could have emotionally and mentally bore in his mind. Another reason for this deep anger could be that Jonah... He has seen little fruit of repentance among his own people in Israel as he has ministered there 
But here in a very short amount of time with an even more wicked people, he is seeing extensive fruit of repentance among them. Perhaps Jonah longed for God's strong hand of judgment to awaken Israel. If God destroys Nineveh, what a mighty lesson that might be for the Hebrews to learn. There's so much that ties into this. But no matter what may be the deeply rooted motive for this, I think all of these contribute. As one commentary said this, at the very worst we see a prophet with a shocking disregard for human life and a bitter hatred towards those who had experienced mercy. At the very best, he was a prophet who misunderstood God's mercy and had a limited view of God's plan for the redemption of his own people. Jonah is a prophet not with no pity, but with a selfish pity. You see, his pitiless heart drives him here to anger. And what does Scripture teach us about anger? Especially that of unrighteous anger. James 1, 19 and 20, application for the Christian today. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce what? The righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so since anger, this unrighteous anger does not produce the righteousness of God, it produces the opposite. And that's exactly what you see flow out of Jonah's anger. In verse 3, notice this foolish request he makes. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is so angry, he just wants to die. He didn't want to die back in the sea when his life was on the line. Isn't He's about to die then, but he's not sure the outcome of Nineveh and how this is all going to play out. Well, maybe I can still live. He didn't want to die there. He prayed for deliverance. But now with this state of life, having to live, knowing that Nineveh is spared and that he may appear to be a false prophet to his brethren, he would rather not live at all. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen one of God's people request to die. Do you remember another prophet who had the same request? A man by the name of Elijah, mighty prophet of God, mighty prophet. 1 Kings 19.4, when he was driven to the wilderness, we read that it, he says to the Lord, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You see, Elijah's request was stirred mainly by depression and discouragement. Jonah's request is out of anger and bitterness. Both are wrong in their request. Both are wrong. You see, Jonah, he has no desire to live in a world where the Lord has had mercy on the enemies of Israel. He is truly angry beyond measure here. And so the great fault here in Jonah is that he supposes that escaping this world is better than living in it obediently to God. This is sinful and selfish all wrapped up in one. Which leads us to number two. We see Jonah's selfish rest. His selfish rest. We see his sinful resentment, but now we see his selfish rest. I want you to notice two things about this. Notice firstly that his expectation for Nineveh was condemnation. That's what he wanted. 
He wanted Nineveh to experience condemnation. Verse 5, listen to this. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now this seems like a little bit of an odd transition. Because the text says nothing. This time span here. How much all that passed? We must, when Jonah, this is being written, relenting from his judgment, all that happened. Chapter 3, verse 10, that was to conclude the point of the passage in the narrative, right? In chapter 4, Jonah is describing his anger in this situation. It could be that Jonah is angry at Nineveh for repenting in time because he knows God's character will spare them. Here, verse 5, look at this. We see that Jonah, upon finishing preaching in the city, he said he heads to the east of the city. After God's question to him, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? It seems almost like Jonah is stomping away to the east, which would have been the city preset point of the city, since he was having come through Israel. So what you find here is that the preaching goes further. He doesn't answer God's question. He just stomps away to the east. It shows the selfish expectation of Jonah that, that he is mad. God is not doing what he wants him to do. He's mad God's not doing what Jonah wants. You know, Jesus likens the people of his own generation to this same kind of a heart. Compare this. Matthew 11, 6. Children sitting in the market. Jesus, their playmates. We play compare this generation. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge. And you did not mourn. In other words, we expect something, but you're not giving it to us. We expect something, but you're not giving it to us. They're like a child who refuses what they need because they didn't get their way. None of us have experienced that with children, have we? Surely not. Jesus was not. See, they will with their expectations. of Jesus' day. He's not bowing to deep resentment in their hearts towards Jesus. And that's what we see with Jonah. Augustine says this about resentment. Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Chew on that a little bit. Resentment, or bitterness you could put there, is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. That's what the person with resentment and bitterness... But what do we see? Poisoning themselves. Because he leaves the city. That's what Jonah's doing. He makes a booth for himself. What's this booth? Well, this booth, it's not like a park bench to sit on. It's, it's a little shelter. It's a little shelter made of some sticks and some, and some leaves, right? Just to kind of keep him from in the shade. But there we see Jonah sitting in the shade looking at Nineveh. And why is he looking at Nineveh? You notice that it says that to see what would become of the city. He's already seen them repent. Jonah is still holding, sitting there waiting, continuing hope. God won't relent from his Still holding on, on Nineveh. Maybe, just maybe. When the 40 days come to expire, judgment will still fall on Nineveh. Remember, we don't have a time span here, but obviously, Jonah's going to sit around and hang around till the 40 days are done. He's going to check this out. Maybe Jonah is thinking Nineveh's repentance is super. Maybe he's genuine. It appears they are repentant on day 40. If that's Within 40 days, maybe, he th maybe they'll revert to their old sinful ways, and they'll still get the cup of God's judgment. Look at this. 
Nineveh repents genuinely. We established that in the last chapter. God looks upon the city with great delight. Jonah looks upon the city people in great disdain. Look with me if you would. Doesn't this remind you? Matthew chapter number 9. People in Jesus. Matthew 9. Look at verse 10 through 13. Notice this. This is right after Jesus calls Matthew, who is a tax collector, one who was very frowned upon as a great sinner and avoid at all costs. Verse 10 of Matthew 9, the Bible says, And Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, were many tax collectors and disciples, sinners. Pharisees saw this, came and were reclined. Why does your disciples with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Down upon the people who actually need the grace of God. And Christian, this is something to bear in mind, that we have no right to view any sinner, no matter how wicked they are, as outside of the saving power of God's grace, if he so chooses. You see, instead we consider the contrast here between Jonah and Jesus as they both look upon wicked cities. The city of Jerusalem upon a wicked city wishing to him and he them. Jesus them. Jerusalem death and he weeps over them. Luke 19, 41 through 44. When he drew near to the city, near he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is proclaiming this judgment's already irreversible. It's going to happen. And he weeps over this. You see, Jonah's heart is further. Now he's so blinded by pride. Not only do we see and that we see his now expectation for Nineveh was condemnation, but his expectation for himself is comfort and gladness. Comfort. He wants comfort. You see, through this time of Jonah's sinful heart, God's going to show him mercy and discipline at the same time. In verse 6, we read. The Bible says, now the Lord, he has appointed a plant to save him from over Jonah. Jonah was a shade over glad because of the plant. Save him from. You notice again God's sovereignty woven through this. This word appointed, that's repeated throughout the book. God appointed the great fish. He appoints this plant. He appoints the worm. He appoints the scorching east wind. God appointed this plant to come up over Jonah that he might be a shade over his head. Isn't that deserve any kind of measure of compassion here? Absolutely not. You don't deserve comfort. So, well, what happened to his booth? He had shade. Well, these, these booths, understand that they make, they, weren't, they wouldn't last forever. It must be assumed that Jonah, he's hanging out there for this 40-day period, and that booth was already dry. This plant grow up. And it's not entirely clear what kind of plant it was. It really doesn't matter, does it? Regardless of what kind it was, God in his divine work is providing some shade for Jonah in the hot Middle Eastern sun. And what do we read with Jonah's response to this? Look at this. The contrast here tells us that Jonah exceedingly that to his 
exceeding anger towards Nineveh. The contrast is so plain here. What a sad state of heart. But his comfort and gladness wouldn't last too long, would it? In verse 7 we read, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. The plant came and went in a night. All by God's appointment, flaming. Even control the worm. That ought to teach us something, right? Even a worm can obey God without complaining. How much more do we need to? But it doesn't end there. The plant's gone. Now verse 8, look at this. The Bible says, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and said he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So God gave him comfort, took it away, and then he brought him pain. Yet again, God's appointment of this scorching east wind. You see, wind and heat are quite uncomfortable, aren't they? One commentary states this, that most identify this wind as experience in Morocco. I don't know what that means. It rises dramatically, to call it. The humidity drops quickly. Experienced in the instant an extremely hot wind that contains fine particles of dust. Nothing's worse than heat, sand, and dust, and wind, right? It, it, it contains constant hot air, so full of positive ions that it affects the levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters, causing exhaustion, depression, translates it as a scorcher. We often use that term, right? The hot summer day, man, it's a scorcher out there. And what's Jonah's response to this? He asked the Lord once again that he might die. He's convinced it's better for me to die than to live. You know what we're seeing in Jonah? Determining that his life is not how life works. Based on his comfort and his world. It's God's world. It's God's plans. Jonah ultimately here wants the easy way out. He thinks it'll be, he'll be better off dead than to live in a world where serving God would not go his way. Unhappy about sinners repenting. He is so consumed with his own comfort and his pride and anger that he fails to see his own sin. And herein is the great danger of pride, Christian. It blinds you from sin. But to see your own is a whole nother story. Richard Sibbs rightly said, a sincere Christian hates sin in himself most. And Christian, you understand that your sin ought to grieve you. Your spiritual problem within your heart. Perhaps even that you need to be born again. Because you understand that when we sin as Christians, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We grieve Him. And I can tell you, when you grieve somebody, they let you know about it, don't they? You understand people married in this room, right? He convicts. He reproves. And I think you're going to see that in Jonah as we come to the end. But here's what, here I want you to understand. This is a modern problem for Christians today. Far too many Christians are more concerned with their own personal comfort than they are about God's truth and His will. About the worship of God. Say, so, well, I'm not going to go to church. I'm too tired. We, well, I've got this going on. I've got that going on. Or our own my Bible. When we exist for God, we put off. You, you understand that you're created to worship the one true God. 
And as Christians, for us who know this, we're even doubly accountable for our response in our Christian life and how we live it unto him. We must learn from Jonah. We learn how not to be. The heart, the warning of this kind of a heart. Now notice with me, number three, that brings us to the further application. Don't you see, from number three, we see Jonah's questions. Jonah's teach him. Firstly, that's in. Through this passage, we see questions from God. In verse 4, kind of breezed over it because I was saving it for right now. Don't think I was skipping over it. Verse by verse, preaching, right? We don't skip verses in expositional preaching. We don't skip over the hard stuff. We tackle it all together. Verse 4, said, do you do well to be angry? Isn't that a question? Notice that Jonah does not give do you this question since there's really no good angry. Give. I mean, what really could you say? Yes, Lord, I do well to be angry that you're merciful to sinners. Wrong. It made Jonah mad. Jonah has no real justification for his anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Don't mistake me. An anger that is rooted in holy motives and acts that are holy. Some people before be angry and sin not. Sin not. Jesus expressed right. But Jonah, the people of the temple, righteous anger. His anger is foolish anger, which is the anger that most people exercise, is it not? Ecclesiastes 7, 9, be not quick. In your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. You see, the correct answer to the Lord's question is, no, I do not do well to be angry, Lord. No. Do we ever do well to be angry? But often, okay, thinking of our own life, dim him. How often, no, we Jonah in differing circumstances. How often have we become angry or upset when things did not go the way we wanted them to go, but at the same time we knew because of God's sovereign nature that the things went exactly as God ordained them to go? Got a flat tire? Boy, it makes me upset. We're prone to that. Listen to this comment by John Randall Easter. If Jonah were correct to be angry, then it would mean that God had done some injustices in this story. Here is a good question to ask whenever we are angered or upset by some circumstance in our... Cut me deep. What wrong has God done in this situation? Is it even possible for God to do wrong in any situation? It's not. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. Kind in all his works. Even if those things are hard to experience. That doesn't change the goodness of God. That doesn't change that what he does. He is all righteous. So all that we justice in anything, there's not been. He is always just done towards Jonah. He has no right to be angry. The question is repeated for Jonah, as you see in verse nine, which reads, "But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant?'" He's getting more specific. And he said, Jonah actually gives him an answer this time. Jonah's at his wit's end. He says, "Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry? I, I. Can you just imagine his tone?" Like a child. I, I do do. What did you do to make that plant come up? Nothing. How'd the plant go away? Did you remove it? No. Jonah had nothing to do with the plant. It was all of God. The same applies to Nineveh. You, you understand that, that in, with Nineveh here, Jonah had more pity for a plant than no right to real people. 
in such a way. No right to complain or wish himself this. What do you see? No right to talk to thee that God is merciful still. Hey, prophet. It amazes me how merciful God is with his own people in some of their rebellion. He really is. I think if you've been a Christian any long time, this is the time, for any time, you, you know that. But I think it's important to understand as we read this account. ways in time, in the order of history that they happened in this narrative, that doesn't mean that Jonah did not get the lesson God was teaching him in there. Who wrote the book of Jonah? Most believe it to be Jonah. We established that at the beginning. Right. Jonah could have neglected to pin down this sinful and embarrassing behavior of himself. But he, by the Holy Spirit, pins it down. Not only to show what the Lord taught him, but also to teach us today of the danger of having such a heart and attitude. And what is the oaks his companion? Learn from this great book, letter as he you see, though his compassion barbarically wicked and the enemies of God's people, God in his compassion showed that sovereign grace is not bound by ethnicity or by the fallen will of man. And I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful for that. Because if it was up to my fallen will, there's no way in the world that I would be saved today. Heaven. Should not I? He makes clear to Jonah, Nineveh, that great city in which... 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You know, he's telling Jonah, you realize how many people are in this city? 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, what's that mean? There's, there's some debate here, and it could go either way. Which means you add a total population with parents involved, that you have upwards of 600,000 people. That population estimate is not really substantiated by archaeology unless you take in all the surrounding areas, too, of Nineveh. But if it's just Nineveh proper, it doesn't quite fit. Most likely, it could refer to an entire city of... No matter what way you dice that, there's, there's more than 120,000 people there that need the grace of God to intervene in their hearts. Now, it may seem odd that the book ends with a question mark. You ever wondered that? You ever read Jonah and think, well, why in the world did the book end this way? Movies. You ever watched a movie and it just ended weird? Well, then with a question. 20 movies that end weird. The question actually drives home the point. Shall not God have compassion upon people such as Ninevites? Shall he not? From Jonah's example... What right do we have to demand God's favor on us and not on others? What right do we have to judge who God is? 14 and 15. And Paul said, Injustice on God's part. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, Jonah needed to learn that though Nineveh was their enemy and would do damage to them and damage to them, the other nations weren't beyond the grace of the world. How do you view some of these other nations, people in the world who hate God? How do you view the Muslim world? 
the atheistic world, the agnostic world, the humanist world? How do you view all these people who are entrenched in gross wickedness and idolatry? You view them as people whom God can save by his gospel. Because his grace is not bound by we take of evil, the will of man, because Jonah, national boundaries, taste of the great committee, we take to heart church to go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Because Christ has all authority in heaven and earth, and he has died for sinners, and he by his grace can reach all the way to the uttermost. So let us rejoice in his work in our lives, we see in scripture. Let us stand to our feet as we have a closing song. Father, we thank you for this.